I'm going to issue a content warning today, not for language or anything of that nature. But given the current climate in the United States and globally, I just want to let you know that today I am going to be talking about something that, uh, for those of you who are sensitive given the current situation, might be a little upsetting. But I am first and foremost an academic, and the way I best deal with a crisis is through more information. So today I'm going to be addressing the largest global pandemic, the influenza epidemic of 1918. So if for whatever reason this is going to be something that upsets you or gives you anxiety, I recommend that you don't listen. But if you are interested in that event and how it changed American cemeteries, I encourage you to listen on. Thank you. In 1918, almost coinciding with the end of the First World War, the entire globe was hit with the most devastating epidemic of not just the modern era, but going back centuries. Many argued that it was deadlier than the Black Plague, given to the larger global population. Across the globe, nearly 50 million died, 675,000 in the U.S. alone. This disease, known by most as the Spanish flu, caused by the H1N1 virus, is still largely a mystery. Today we'll consider not just the virus, but how it changed the landscape of the United States, and how also unusually, for most of the 20th century, it was largely forgotten. Walk through almost any cemetery anywhere in the United States, and you can still see the scars left by this disease. But until the recent crisis, it was largely not discussed. Today we consider how cemeteries can help us understand the past in ways that other cultural institutions can't. I'm Liz Clappen, and this is Tomb of the View. So I'm hoping that everyone is safe out there and is quarantined and washing their hands. I myself have been out of action since Wednesday. Wednesday, I got approved to work from home. Uh, I am a type 1 diabetic, which does put me on the high-risk list for the CDC. But I'm going to be honest, I do understand enough about how disease is transmitted that I didn't really want to be in an office building with 300 other people at my company uh, particularly considering they're doing work on the roof and the HVAC system is not working at its best. I'm not sure the last time they vacuumed the carpet in my building, but I'm pretty sure there was snow on the ground, which, if you know anything about Atlanta, isn't very often. So I am working from home, or I have been for the past few days. Most people I know are, but that being said... Uh, I am the daughter of a nurse. Uh, I know my mother is still working full-time, and I know that many of my friends who are nurses, PAs, doctors, all of them are working their tails off. So I am in great appreciation of that. Um, I was officially laid off from my second job at a restaurant yesterday, which luckily I have a 9-to-5, so that's not impacting me as much. But my thoughts do go out to all of my friends in the restaurant industry, and I have many of them. I have worked in restaurants for the last 10 years, and I know how hard those folks are struggling right now. So my thoughts are with them. 
Uh, but primarily, I hope that everybody is staying safe. Um, I know that yesterday there were certainly some very scary reports coming out of Italy. Um, I won't lie. I went back and forth a lot on whether or not to do this episode. As I said in the intro, if you were listening to that, the best way I deal with anything is to gain information. Uh, I am an Enneagram type five. If there are any other type fives out there, you'll know that 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 personality type is the investigator. I feel most in control when I have details. I also think that it's an opportunity to learn from the past. And it was very interesting because obviously I knew quite a bit about this topic before. But with the global pandemic occurring now, there is far more information out there about the 1918 epidemic than there ever has been in the past. So I think that that's exciting. It is something that people are reflecting on. People are trying to use that data. So hopefully this is an interesting discussion for you. I am going to be going less into the nitty-gritty details beyond what you need to understand in terms of overall patterns, what the culture was like. I am mainly going to focus on cemeteries because that's what we're here for. Uh, And I realize that cemeteries at this point might not be what people want to talk about. And I also understand that. (laughs) Um... I definitely noticed it in my download numbers next last week, um, even though it was a nice, cheerful St. Patrick's Day episode. So I can understand that the Cemetery Podcast is not going to be the most popular on people's minds, but uh, somehow the serial killers are still popular. So I'm hoping that we boot and rally, and I know that a lot of people are at home and they are hungry for podcasts, so I am going to keep doing this as long as I can uh, to put some content out there. So that's kind of where my perspective is at the moment um and when you see things that are disturbing especially in terms of death numbers and whatnot um I know particularly a lot of people sent me the notice about Bergamo which is in the Lombardy region of northern Italy yesterday where it's a city of about 120,000, but it's on the smaller side, and the mortuaries there cannot keep up with the number of dead. So they had army convoys who were taking coffins to other regions for both burial and cremation. And right now, it is against the law to have any public gathering in Italy. So there are no funerals, and two priests were arrested in Italy for performing a funeral. This is something that I I understand why it's terrifying because we, this entire podcast is formed around the idea that rituals matter and that the cultural significance of mourning and death is very, very important. And so in a time where things are at such an extreme that we can't do that, it forces us to question everything. So hopefully you'll get some perspective into this by learning what happened in 1918 And also see some hope in it, because there definitely is hope. And we have learned a great deal since then. And that information is making a difference in how we handle the current situation. So hopefully I haven't lost most of you at this point. Um, Though, if you do think I am absolutely crazy and you completely disagree with me talking about this, I do respect that. So... 
looking at the population of the world at the time, as I said, there's a really wide range. Some people estimate, you know, 15 to 30 million deaths. The, the top range is around 50 million. And the estimates go even higher in terms of how many were affected. They estimate up to 500 million or roughly a third of the planet was at one time infected. Um, they do have evidence that there is only one place on Earth, which I think was a small island off Brazil, maybe, that was not impacted by the influenza epidemic of 1918. Um, the interesting thing about H1N1, and if that particular virus sounds familiar to you, it's probably because we also had a pandemic of H1N1 in 2009. I'll talk a little bit more about that later. Just to give you an idea, even in the United States, how devastating this was, after this pandemic, which lasted roughly about two years, roughly about 1918 to 1920, the life expectancy in terms of actual numbers in the U.S. had dropped by 12 years. And the reason for that is, is that this, unlike most strains of influenza, which there are many, disproportionately affected people in their middle years. I've seen some ranges that place it as 15 to 34, some 20 to 40, but either way, the population that generally doesn't worry about these things unless they are for some reason immune compromised. Normally, influenza and most infectious diseases disproportionately affect either the very young, those under five years of age, or the very old. This obviously affected those people too, but it was mainly young, healthy people. And the thing about H1N1 is the virus certainly has a negative effect on the body, but the majority of people who died during the influenza epidemic actually died of secondary infections. So the best way I can explain this is, in many ways, it's almost like most people's understanding of HIV, that when it causes AIDS, most people, or no one, actually dies of AIDS. They die of a secondary infection, most commonly pneumonia because their immune system cannot fight it off h1n1 very very similar the majority of people who died actually died from secondary bacterial infections primarily pneumonia so this type of flu decimates your immune system and leaves you open to secondary infections and it for the most part it did kill very quickly and the infection numbers that we see happen on such a really rapid scale. That's one of the reasons that it was as devastating as it was because it was almost impossible to contain. Now keep in mind, this is an era before antibiotics. The most successful things that they used to control this epidemic are going to be isolation, quarantine, good personal hygiene, and all around disinfecting techniques. Interesting because that's also what's being used right now. So in the absence of the traditional type of cure, this is generally the first line of defense that they tried to separate people. And the reason for this is 
we understand now that one of the problems that occurred during this epidemic was the fact that people were just too damn close to one another. First off, our living patterns have changed quite a bit. At the time, family sizes were much larger and house sizes were much smaller. So transmission of communicable diseases was a lot easier. There were no McMansions at the time. And obviously you know that epidemics disproportionately impact those who are in the lower social strata. I'm not saying that those who were wealthy or well-to-do did not die because they certainly did. It was very indiscriminate. But living in close quarters in very small houses definitely impacted how people were infected. Secondly, and this is the predominant theory today, if you look up photos from the 1918 epidemic, almost all of them are in military hospitals. And that's because with the end of World War I, troop movements, basically they were trying to get everybody back from Europe as quickly as possible. And that meant that they were packed tightly into ships, That meant that all of the camps, when they got back to the United States, were overcrowded. And lastly, it meant that with such large populations to feed, these kids were often malnourished, coming back from the front where they didn't eat regular meals. So in terms of their immune system, they were ripe for infection. Um, The first confirmed case is a man named Albert Gitchell at Fort Riley, Kansas. And there's a lot of pictures you can see of Fort Riley. He died on March 4th, 1918. And he is considered to be kind of like victim zero. Um, He had gotten sick three days before. So on the 1st of March, 1918, it starts in the U.S. Three days after he died, there were 522 new cases in Fort Riley, Kansas. That gives you an idea of how fast this spread in close quarters. Now, we don't necessarily know where it came from before that. I read a lot of different articles speculating on it. Obviously, this is a American Cemeteries podcast, so I'm going to focus on what happened here in the United States. Though it's interesting to me that other countries have done a far superior job in terms of memorializing this compared to the United States. Um... In doing my research, I came across a lot of photos of a Spanish influenza memorial in New Zealand, which I was kind of surprised at. I tend to think of those specific islands as being very remote, but obviously they were certainly impacted by it as well. Now, you might ask why this is known as the Spanish flu. And I think that this is actually really interesting because it's also tied to the fact that this is occurring in and around the end of the First World War. So, as I'm sure you know, Armistice Day is November 11th, so the war doesn't officially end until November of 1918. So when this pandemic starts, it's still in the midst of wartime. So a lot of the information being conveyed is being conveyed by wartime censors. Obviously, the whole job of censorship is to try to keep up morale and to control the information that the public is getting. So in both the 
in both sides of the war, so both Germany as well as Britain, France, and the U.S., they tried to make it seem like the severity of this disease in Spain was far worse than anywhere else. You might say, why Spain? Well, if you remember your history, Spain remained neutral in World War I. So they were not seen as being part of the conflict. So it was very easy to push this off and make it seem like this was their problem and their disease. And this was kind of exacerbated by the fact that um, King Alfonso XIII was gravely ill during this period. So having a monarch infected definitely helped to kind of encapsulate this whole idea. So when we talk about in the current situation, the fact that it is being called the China virus, this is not something new. This type of propaganda, this type of censorship is age old and it helps to create a scapegoat. Now, the interesting thing I think about this is, is that we don't realize just how prevalent the disease was on a larger scale though. And so in my research, I stumbled across a list someone had made of people who actually survived the influenza epidemic at the time, um, despite all the propaganda and probably called it the Spanish flu. Uh, interestingly enough, Edvard Munch, the artist who you probably best know for his portrait called The Scream, he actually suffered from the Spanish flu and did a whole series of self-portraits during his time in quarantine that he calls self-portraits with Spanish flu. They're very interesting. They're at the National Gallery in Norway now. Um, I'll try to post some pictures of those because I was very interested and I had never really seen those before. Um, but David Lloyd George, who is um, at that time a future prime minister of Great Britain, Woodrow Wilson, U.S. President, Mahatma Gandhi, Greta Garbo, Walt Disney, all of them suffered from and survived the Spanish flu. So it's pretty deadly, but you do have continued survival of a number of people, essentially as they figured out the way to contain the disease. One other interesting thing that I read and makes me particularly thoughtful in terms of the current situation is the fact that the widespread infection that occurred in 1918-1919 is linked to the outbreak of encephalitis lethargica in the 1920s, which if you are familiar with the movie Awakenings, uh, which came out I think in 1990, it starred Robert De Niro and the late Robin Williams, is actually about the trials that were done with L-DOPA, uh, which is synthetic dopamine, uh, common treatment for Parkinson's, it was used to treat patients who had been catatonic for nearly 40 years. Uh, and it's all based on a true story. The, um, the doctor who wrote the story was actually involved in all of that. Um, so I was very interested to see how there is, you know, the research of Oliver Sacks, who was the doctor that undertook the L-DOPA trials, and his book was written in 73. I think these happened in the late 60s. Most of these people had encephalitis as either children or young adults, eventually became catatonic from it, and spent most of their adult lives catatonic until he started treating them well with L-DOPA in the 60s. And unfortunately, due to resistance and a number of other factors, it was not a completely successful treatment, and many of them ended up degenerating. But 
this is something where you have this pandemic in the teens and the effects are still still being felt in the 70s. Even though the event itself had been largely forgotten, in society, we still continue to see traces of it. And that's going to be kind of my focus today because you can definitely see this in cemeteries. This is something that is, to me, really significant. Um, And it actually came to my attention a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I've always been a huge Stephen King fan, so I had been watching The Outsider, um, the limited series on HBO, which is based on his book. And in the finale, which I can't remember if it was two or three weeks ago now, every day the same, right? There's a scene, and I'm not giving anything away if you were planning on watching it, where two of the characters, one of them, um, Holly Maitland, is the ultra-perceptive almost Asperger-y type character, they're walking through a cemetery and her companion notes that there are two graves for a husband and wife who died a week apart. And he makes the comment that, oh, isn't that romantic? It must be one of those examples of someone who died of a broken heart. They lose their spouse and then they just can't go on living. And she takes one look at the headstones and looks at them and she said, no, they died of influenza. And he says, there's no way you can know that. And she said, they died in the fall of 1918. They died of influenza. Which I thought was great. Because anybody who studies cemeteries would tell you the exact same thing. It's not a trend that just the average person would notice. But in cemeteries, it's a very, very pointed fact. And you can definitely see an uptick in the amount of headstones versus previous years. So... I want to start by considering a case study. And so this particular case study is the city of Philadelphia. You may have heard me mention before, I did live in Philly for a year. And Philadelphia is the case study for this because they were by far one of the hardest hit of any city. Um, October 1918, as I said, was the deadliest month of the pandemic um on the week ending october 16th 1918 there were 4597 deaths in philadelphia a couple of weeks later by november 11th which was armistice day there were no deaths so it just goes to show how in three weeks you can go from absolute devastation to almost non-existence of a virus by containing it Now, at the time of the outbreak, Philadelphia has a population of uh, 1.7 million. It's a very busy city. And they have pretty easily isolated how the disease arrived. And as I already said, it arrived with troops. So 600 soldiers land in the Philadelphia Navy Yard. And at least one of them is infected on September 19th, 1918. I've read that they came from Boston, and probably before Boston, they had come from Europe. So some of the soldiers that land are sick. The infection quickly spreads through them. Now, this probably would not have mattered, except for the fact that there is a huge Liberty Loan parade planned for about a week after these soldiers land. And this is a massive celebration um, for the purchase of war bonds, which had helped sustain the military 
and the home front and all of those things throughout World War One. And you have nearly 200,000 people cram into the streets of Philadelphia to watch this parade. And by October 1st, you have 635 new cases of influenza. In just six weeks, you have nearly 12,000 dead and a total of about 50,000 cases. Even in a city of 1.7 million, that is devastating numbers. Now, the other case study that's always used, and it's funny, I was talking to my neighbor who's a nursing student yesterday, and she said, well, are you going to talk about St. Louis? Because St. Louis is always the other case study. St. Louis canceled their parade. They had 700 die. When people make arguments against sheltering in place, this is the case study that they're going to use, and with good reason. Influenza in 24 weeks in the United States killed more people than AIDS has in 24 years. That is not to downplay the importance of the AIDS crisis at all. It just goes to show how a disease that is so easily transmitted can be passed on. So Philadelphia is obviously devastated. You have all kinds of stories that come out of there. Um, where, first of all, they cannot keep up with the amount of the dead. So the Philadelphia City Morgue at the time was designed to hold 36 bodies. They were able to fit 200 bodies in there at one point and then opened up five additional morgues across the city to deal with the dead. And even then, they couldn't handle the volume. Now, this is a good time to bring up the fact that one of the reasons that the influenza epidemic was as devastating as it was is because it occurred during wartime or at the very end of the war. So many medical personnel, including doctors and nurses, were overseas or were still deployed. So they did not have the medical personnel to take care of people. The same thing with funeral homes. Many of them had lost their assistance. They had lost their extra help because people were overseas fighting. Um, There are reports of undertakers marking up their prices by 500%. And eventually what happens is that bodies are being sealed up in rooms until they can figure out what to do with them because there is no one to take care of them. One of the most famous photos that I have seen, and let it be said, because Philadelphia is a very Catholic city, the Catholic archives there is exceptional. There are lots of photographs of the seminarians from St. Charles Borromeo Seminary, which is right on the main line of Philadelphia. I talked about the main line last week in our St. Patrick's Day episode. Um, Beautiful. They've actually just sold it um, because the Archdiocese is broke. But St. Charles Borromeo is sort of right at the intersection of Lancaster Avenue, which runs out um, of the city. It's sort of on the edge What they did was they took all of the seminary students, the young men studying to be priests, and there are photos of them digging long trench graves in Holy Cross Cemetery, which is in Yaden, which is not terribly far from there, but far enough away. That's one of the large Catholic cemeteries, um, probably most famous for being the final burial place of H.H. Holmes, um, the devil in the White City, the, the man with the murder castle. He was actually finally executed in... Pennsylvania, and he was buried at Holy Cross in an unmarked grave. 
So they are digging these long trench graves to bury the dead because there are no grave diggers to do it. And there are lots of accounts of people paying the privilege of $15 just to be able to bury their own loved one because it was quicker than waiting for an undertaker to do it. Um, I actually read a account in the Philadelphia Inquirer that was published for the 100-year anniversary two years ago uh, of a woman talking about the aunt that she never knew, her father's youngest sister, Elizabeth, who had died when she was, I think, just three or four years old of the Spanish flu. And to put it in perspective, she talked about how her grandfather had dug the grave himself when he was still weak, recovering from the flu, uh, because they wanted her properly buried. Um, and she's buried in Holy Sepulchre Cemetery in um, Cheltenham, Pennsylvania, which, again, is one of the suburbs. It's one of the northern suburbs. Um, to give a contrast, in October of 1917, a year before the worst month of the epidemic, there were 114 burials in that Catholic cemetery, which, it's a big cemetery. There's a large Catholic population in Philadelphia. Not a surprising number. In October of 1918, there were 1,152. So you're talking almost 10 times as many burials within the span of a month. This to me is classic, and it's certainly what we're facing now in places like Bergamo, where the way that the system is set up is not meant to handle this kind of volume. And if you have learned anything from the many history episodes I've done at this point, that what generally forces changes in cemeteries is the fact that they cannot handle epidemics. How many times have I said that there was a cholera outbreak, there was a yellow fever outbreak, some sort of outbreak of disease which kills a large number of people and suddenly you have corpses rotting in the streets, you need to do something about it. So this is an important lesson. Um... I have been to Westview Cemetery here in Atlanta many times, but for whatever reason, I had never visited their receiving vault, which we talk a lot about receiving vaults on the show. We talked about them in the Concord episode, in the Halloween episode, in places where it gets very cold and you have frozen ground, receiving vaults are used to store bodies above ground until they can be properly buried when the spring thaw occurs. Or sometimes if their bodies are being transferred someplace else, we talked about how Abraham Lincoln was kept in the receiving vault for some time. The doorway on the receiving vault at Westview here in Atlanta, and I would recommend if you have not seen it, it is quite a spectacular receiving vault. It really is. Um, It's built into the hillside, and it is absolutely enormous. I had not seen something quite like it. Um, partially because I wasn't looking for it, but also partially because I did not realize just how grand this particular monument was. And if you look at the doorway, it kind of like curves into the hillside. Um, and the doorway actually has been sealed mainly because there is a huge mausoleum there an above ground mausoleum it's actually the largest in the u.s it has burials for forty-four thousand people but the receiving vault which was originally built in 1888 says built in 1888 when the cemetery was four years old its dimensions are 25 feet in width 
30 feet in height and 18 feet in depth. The normal capacity is 36. Until the early 20th century, roads through the cemetery were often impassable in winter, when ice, snow, and mud bogged down the horse-drawn hearse. It was here that the casket was kept until weather-permitted internment. Great service to the community was rendered by this vault during the winter of 1917 and 1918, when Atlanta's influenza epidemic claimed hundreds of lives. Victims were brought here awaiting burial. This vault was permanently sealed in 1945 because of the availability of thousands of crypts in Westview Abbey Mausoleum. That is the first time I have ever seen something like that placed on a receiving vault or placed publicly memorializing the importance of that, the volume. So that having a receiving vault was considered a positive thing. Keep in mind, one of the reasons that you want to bury people quickly in any kind of epidemic is that you don't want people to become infected by the corpses. So having a safe place to lay them where they are relatively preserved and they are out of the way and people are not being infected is huge. So the question is, you know, we have these photographs of uh, the seminarians digging trench pits uh, so that they can bury dozens of people at once, not just single bodies. What else happened? So I'm going to give you the example of Schuylkill Haven. And this is a small town about 90 miles northwest of Philadelphia. And recently, the Pennsylvania DOT was working on widening Route 61, which runs through Schuylkill Haven. And what they discovered was that after a night of heavy rain, where they had started excavating what looked like an empty field, they started to see bones appear. And it was clear that this was not just a single burial. This was dozens, if not hundreds of people. So they called in the coroner, a man by the name of uh, David J. Moylan III. He came and when they started to poke around, they started to talk to people. They realized that there were rumors that this had been a mass grave that was used during the influenza epidemic where a farmer had donated part of his land so that the dead could be quickly buried. And what happens next is that they make the decision in consultation with the property owner, because obviously they bought the right away that they needed for the road widening, but they didn't buy the whole parcel of land was that those on the edge were going to be removed and they were taken to Mercyhurst university for examination and they were eventually reburied in, um, an actual cemetery, but the remainder of the people were left there. It bears the question, if places like Philadelphia, if major areas like this were impacted so badly that what they were doing was that they were hastily burying people anywhere that they could, and there's evidence that they used quicklime to try to get the bodies to break down faster, how many of these exist across the United States? Now, Personally, I did a lot of research on vernacular cemetery markers. They were sort of my early bread and butter when I first started this. Um, you will probably recall that I talked about this in the episode that I did with Sam Beatler back in episode five, 
the reason I had come to work with him as an intern working for the city of Savannah was actually documenting concrete vernacular markers. When I lived in Philadelphia, I had read a paper about the cemeteries of Middlesex County, New Jersey. And I'm going to swing over from Philadelphia because it's a, it's a short trip, um, you know, probably about an hour. In Middlesex County, there are an abundance of homemade concrete markers, mainly made by a neighborhood person, someone who had a mold and a little bit of skill, knew how to mix concrete, and would make these as a side hustle. And this is certainly not unique to New Jersey. You can find these vernacular markers all over the place. But one of the things that I realized was when I went up to Middlesex County to start looking at these, and the majority of them are in Catholic cemeteries, there are a few things that you notice. First of all, they tend to be on the edges of cemeteries. They tend to represent recently arrived immigrant populations, which in the case of Middlesex County was Eastern Europeans. And thirdly, they tend to cluster around disaster periods. And I say this because it's very different than seeing the same type of vernacular concrete markers in the South, because they were often the work of a local artisan. They were seen as an alternative to traditional funerary practices. There was a great deal of pride. They were often made by family. Up north, it is far less so. Up north, they are a necessity. I say all this because I, I do have quite a few examples, and I will definitely post them on Instagram this week. I went through, I hadn't looked at those pictures in a couple of years, uh, but I do have a number of excellent examples. There are probably eight to ten Catholic cemeteries in a very small area in this part of Middlesex County. But interestingly enough, I read an article about the Washington Monumental Cemetery, which is in South River, New Jersey. And that's another example where there are no concrete markers. There are no markers at all. Um, New Jersey, and I looked up the numbers because I was curious, it experienced about 10,000 deaths due to influenza. But it appears this particular area was very hard hit. And this... For just like a general geographic region, it's near Perth Amboy. Um, this is interestingly enough where my father grew up. He grew up um, in the town of Oldbridge. Uh, so kind of across from Staten Island in north central Jersey. So in the Washington Monumental Cemetery in South River, which was founded in 1906, in the southeastern corner of the cemetery, um, near the intersection of Hillside and Willett Avenues, there is nearly 10,000 square feet of the cemetery that is almost completely devoid of markers. Um, but for whatever reason, over the years, even as the cemetery filled up more and more, they never used it. And... The rumor was, was that the nearby Red Cross hospital that had been set up during the influenza epidemic, which had 600 beds, so a pretty big hospital, had buried those who died in the influenza epidemic in this particular plot of land. Um, and that the numbers had been so great and the deaths had been so frequent that there were not enough hearses and that they had actually shipped bodies over to the cemetery in the back of beer wagons. Now, there was no confirmation, and this is why, again, it's very mysterious, this epidemic, because people definitely tried to forget it very quickly. 
So with the 100th anniversary of the epidemic coming up, the South River Historical and Preservation Society made a decision that they were going to look into this with the cemetery's cooperation. So they sent a gentleman out to do some GPR, ground penetrating radar, to either confirm or refute the claim that this may have been a mass grave. And what he found was that in this 10,000 square feet in this corner of the cemetery, there were roughly 400 anomalies, rectangular shaped, almost certainly grave shafts. Now, again, most of these graves are not marked. They have had some relatives when they started to publish this come forward and say, oh, I know that my aunt is buried there or my grandfather is buried there. But it goes to show that this was something that was common enough that these two locations, one just outside of Philadelphia, one in New Jersey, right across the river, the same thing is happening, that this epidemic is so devastating that they are forced to create mass graves to handle the sheer amount of dead. If you are interested, uh, I didn't include it just because obviously we've recently talked to her, but... um, Our good friend Emily Ford down in New Orleans, who you heard from um, in our double episodes back over Mardi Gras about a month ago, she actually has an excellent post on her blog, which I will put a link for it in the show notes, uh, about the epidemic in New Orleans, which being a port city was definitely impacted. Um, Like I said, we just talked about New Orleans extensively, so I decided to go with Philadelphia, even though we talked a little bit about Greater Philadelphia last week as well. Um, There's also just a lot more data. Um, New Orleans is a little bit unusual in how they handle their burials compared to other places. But certainly if you are interested, I think it's great um, to maybe read some of the lesser-known cases, which I thought was interesting. Um... And my favorite thing in her entire blog post is that they were trying to promote eating certain foods as being beneficial for people. And there was a advertisement um, from the local newspaper advertising frozen custard as being an excellent example. And so I have to give the salespeople credit for trying to sell ice cream as the cure to influenza. So when we talk about graveyards, obviously we've talked about a couple of different types. We've talked about traditional cemeteries that were overwhelmed. We've talked about people digging their own graves. Um, The last thing I want to talk about is how cemeteries, aside from what's above ground, can help us, um, but more importantly, what's below ground. So... There is another great case study of a civilization that was almost completely wiped out. And I say civilization, I should say community. And this is the Brevig Mission in Alaska. Brevig is B-R-E-V-I-G. And it's a remote outpost where the majority of the people are of Inuit descent. Very isolated, but still... In the fall of 1918, the population, which at that point was about 80 adults, was decimated. So between November 15th and 20th, in a five-day span, 72 of the 80 adults living at Brevig Mission died. Because of the suddenness and severity of it, they were buried in a mass grave on a hillside outside of town. 
Now, obviously, this is very different than what we just talked about in either Philadelphia or New Jersey. There is a very low population. At this point, they don't have a lot of options, and they have tons of open space. So obviously, everyone knows where the grave is, but it's marked only with small white wooden crosses. Now, the Breving Mission, a population of 80, while it was locally devastating, in the larger scheme of things, is not really the sexiest story that you can tell about the influenza epidemic. What changes this, though, is that in 1951, so now we're talking... 30, more than 30 years after, so after the end of World War II, we have a scientist who decides that he is going to use the Brevig mission because they are unusually one of the few places where the Spanish flu could have survived. So in this pandemic, because the majority of people are being either hastily buried or are decomposing quickly because they cannot be buried, we don't have a whole lot of data on it, unfortunately. It was a very misunderstood disease. They didn't necessarily know that much about it. And so a man named Johan Holten, H-U-L-T-I-N, who was a 25-year-old Swedish microbiology student and a PhD candidate at the University of Iowa, he read about the example of the Brevig mission and how many people had died there and how quickly. And he developed a theory that because they were buried so quickly and it was such a cold, harsh environment, that their bodies in the frozen permafrost of the, the Alaskan, Australian wilderness, I don't know where that came from, in the Alaskan wilderness would be the perfect environment to preserve the virus. Now, if you recall back to high school biology, you'll remember that viruses are not in and of themselves living. They essentially are a bundle of genetic material wrapped in protein, and it cannot survive without a host. So being parasitic in nature, viruses need to latch onto a host and they infect the host cell, kill the host cell, and then allow more viruses to reproduce. And this is why it's very difficult to fight viruses, and it's one of the reasons that antibiotics don't work on them. Because antibiotics kill bacteria, which are living things. Viruses are not living things, and the way they reproduce is so different. But the theory that they could be preserved is actually pretty well documented, and we know that especially tissue, when it is kept in a frozen or semi-frozen state, tends to remain pretty stable. And that's why so many anatomical samples are frozen to preserve them in the exact way as they were when they died. So Holton travels to Alaska, and with the permission of the village elders, he plans to exhume bodies from this mass grave. And this is no easy feat because it is still cold and the ground is frozen. He actually has to thaw the earth out by basically creating campfires over a whole area to thaw the ground out for several days before he can even dig. 
But two days into his dig, he does discover his first victim, who is a little girl. Um, she's still very intact, wearing a blue dress with red ribbons in her hair. And so he continues digging until he finds more victims, and he is able to take samples of lung tissue from four other victims. He takes this tissue and he flies himself back, 25-year-old flying a DC-3 prop airplane, which, if you know anything about airplanes back then, you had to stop to refuel pretty frequently. So he, his notes are actually really interesting to read because he talks about how he was desperately trying to get the tissue, the tissue to not unthaw because as soon as it started to unthaw, it was going to start to break down and decompose. So he's trying to freeze it using CO2 from fire extinguishers to keep it cold. When he returns to the University of Iowa, he tries to regrow the virus by injecting it into chicken eggs, but is unfortunately unsuccessful. And part of it is that he doesn't have the technology, he doesn't understand, he's not sure if his sample size is too small, if the unthawing during the transportation process is what destroyed it, but it's considered a failure. Now, I would leave it there. Interesting cemetery story doesn't really have much impact. Except for the fact that 46 years later, in 1997, a researcher named Jeffrey Taubenberger is looking to sequence the genetic code of the H1N1 virus, which caused the Spanish influenza epidemic. And Dr. Holton now age 72, reads this article and is intrigued by the fact that Taubenberger basically says that they are unable to fully map this DNA because they don't have enough of the sample. Um, they had been working with a sample that was extracted from a serviceman who died of the Spanish flu on September 26, 1918 at Fort Jackson, South Carolina. It was the most intact sample that they had, but it wasn't enough. So, Holton, as I said, now 72 years old, contacts Taubenberger and says, I have an idea where you might get the DNA that you need to finish sequencing this. So at age 72... He takes about $3,600 of his own money and Johann Holton returns to the Brevig mission in 1997. And he proceeds to repeat the same process that he had used 46 years earlier, digging in the permafrost. And he was able to find a mostly intact obese woman in her 1920, in the 20s who died when she was in her mid-20s of influenza he removed her lungs entirely to get as much sample as possible, put them in essentially a embalming slash preservation fluid, and returned them to Taubenberger, who was able at that point to successfully sequence the genome of H1N1. Now, the interesting thing about this is, and there's, there's, a, lot of, there's a lot that you can say, First of all, it is completely mind-boggling that the preservation lasted that long and that permafrost was able to keep the bodies preserved that long. Secondly, what they discover is a lot of information. First of all, 
that H1N1 is unusual in the sense that it is not DNA. So if you recall DNA from biology class, you know it's the double helix. So it's double-stranded, and you have these, these paired building blocks, you know, adenine, guanine, cytosine, thymine. Well, what he discovers is that uh, Taubenberger, when he breaks down the H1N1, he discovers, first of all, that it is RNA, not DNA, which makes it very unusual among viruses. Second of all, it was always assumed it was a bird flu and of avian origin, which is where they think that most of these viruses came from. What he discovered was, though, is that this RNA that it contains is actually far closer to either porcine, meaning pig, or human DNA. So that's where the term swine flu comes from, is the fact that that is where it originates. It is not of avian origin, like the quote-unquote bird flu. Also, he almost immediately starts to, well, not almost immediately, it takes a couple years. In 2005, he starts to try to replicate the virus. Essentially, the goal that Johann Holton had back in 1951 to have a successful sample that they could study. And this is one of the reasons, this research and the ability to extract this DNA, understand this DNA, that when the H1N1 virus outbreak occurs in 2009, they're able to limit it to, I think, about 14,000 deaths. It is far smaller than it could have been. It does not reach the global pandemic levels that it did in 1918 and 1919 because of this research, because they were able to extract this DNA and they were able to gain information from these victims in this cemetery at Brevig Mission. If that's not one of the coolest cemetery stories that we have ever heard, I don't know what is. Pathology is the study of the origin of diseases, and it's often unpleasant and people don't have a stomach for it because it means that you have to desecrate bodies to get that information. If the disease killed them, the best way to understand the disease is to study those who suffer from it. But how many lives can it save as a result? Now, I think we're at our point in our epidemic where things are still too unknown Keep in mind that even the first attempt to understand H1N1 was a good 30 years after it happened. Um, And there have been subsequent pandemics, not just the outbreak um, of H1N1, but you also have H2N2, um, which outbreaks in 1957, which causes roughly a million deaths. Um, H3N2 in 1968, which again causes about a million deaths. Um, That's not even to go into something like polio, which polio is often, again, not discussed, despite how devastating it was, how highly contagious it was. There are more examples than you can count. Just like in many cases, if you go into a cemetery, there are more graves than you can count who are the result of these type of epidemics. But I would argue that cemeteries... They provide us an insight that we often don't have, particularly when people don't talk about it. This is something that's devastating. It clearly devastated a generation. But we have been able to use cemeteries to better understand that. Now, (laughs) the interesting thing I did find when I was doing this research was that this was not unexpected, what is happening now. So 
I, I will give credit to the CDC because a lot of what I read about Breivik Mission came from their website. Um, they had written it, at, again, as an anniversary piece in 19, from 1918 to 2018 for the centennial anniversary of the pandemic. But they say, quote, if a severe pandemic such as occurred in 1918 happened today, it would still likely overwhelm healthcare infrastructure both in the United States and across the world. Hospitals and doctor's offices would struggle to meet the demand from the number of patients requiring care. Such an event would likely require significant increases in the manufacture, distribution, and supply of medications, products and life-saving medical equipment, such as mechanical respirators. Businesses and schools would struggle to function, and even basic services like trash pickup and waste removal could be impacted. Other challenges at the global level include surveillance capacity, infrastructure, and pandemic planning. The majority of countries that report to the World Health Organization still do not have a national pandemic plan. And critical and clinical care capacity, especially in low-income countries, continues to be inadequate to meet the demands of a severe pandemic. In 2005, milestones were created in the revised international health regulations for countries to improve their response capacity for public health emergencies. But as of 2016, less than one-third of countries were in compliance with these orders. So that's scary. The idea that medical professionals and people in the know said, yeah, no, we need to learn from our past mistakes. And if this were to happen today, we can't handle it. Well, clearly they have been proven 100% correct when they predicted that two years ago. I think that we are doing maybe not the best that we can, but we are definitely struggling through it together. I continue to try to take hope from knowing that in the past, we have, even in a matter of weeks, turned a situation around. I'll leave you with something that's a little bit lighter. Um, I read this, and I, I didn't check too much into the veracity of this. It sounds too good to be true, but maybe it is. And it's a letter from F. Scott Fitzgerald, who was quarantined in the south of France in 1920. He writes, Dearest Rosemary, it was a limpid, dreary day, hung as in a basket from a single dull star. Thank you for your letter. Outside, I perceive what may be a collection of fallen leaves tussling against a trash can. It rings like jazz to my ears. The streets are that empty. It seems as though the bulk of the city has retreated to their quarters, rightfully so. At this time, it seems very poignant to avoid all public spaces. Even the bars, as I told Hemingway, but to that he punched me in the stomach, and to which I asked him if he had washed his hands. He hadn't. He is much the denier, that one, why he considers the virus to be just influenza and I'm curious of his sources. The officials have alerted us to ensure we have a month's worth of necessities. As a result, Zelda and I have stocked up on red wine, whiskey, rum, vermouth, absinthe, white wine, sherry, gin, and Lord, if we need it, brandy. Pray for us. Hopefully you are as well prepared as F. Scott Fitzgerald. Um, don't be a Hemingway in this situation. Uh, try to stay out of the bars, try to make good decisions. Um, 
first and foremost, just be safe. Uh, I don't want to add anybody to our casualty list. Uh, I have been very lucky. I do not know anybody who is currently infected. Um, but like I said, my thoughts are certainly with all of you, hoping that you're staying safe. Hopefully this was informative and not too scary for you. It gave you some perspective on how we can learn from the past, how cemeteries changed, and maybe the next time you take a walk in one, which is one of the few things that you can do these days, you will be able to look around and see those traces of the past that you might have overlooked before. While you are home, if you have some time, please rate and review, subscribe on iTunes. All of those ratings really do make a difference. They help drive me up the charts. They help make me much more visible to people who are looking for new podcasts. Currently, I mean, unless you directly search for cemeteries, you directly search my name, you can't find me. So the more prevalent I am in searches, the more hits I get from those reviews really do help me. Um, I am sharing information all the time on both Facebook and Instagram, Facebook tomb with a view podcast and Instagram tomb period with period a period view. Um, obviously most other events are going to be canceled right around now, but like I said, I am going to keep releasing every Friday. Unfortunately, probably none of the interviews or anything else that I had been promising are going to happen anytime soon just because of practical reasons, but I will definitely try to keep some interesting topics coming to you. Hopefully you guys, again, stay safe out there. Please feel free to email with any requests about topics that may help me fill in some of the gaps until we can get back out there into the real world. But for now, I'm Liz Clappin, and this is Tomb of the View.